0: Thanks for listening to the Goblin Lore Podcast. Just a couple of brief notes before we begin the episode. This is a discussion about a couple of very sensitive topics. We do discuss sexual violence, combat violence, triggers themselves, child abuse, death, and suicide to some degree, as does Michelle Rapp of Card Kingdom's article that we mentioned later in the episode. If any of those issues cause you to be uncomfortable, there is no shame in pausing this, turning it off, or listening to something else. We understand it and are sensitive to that. But we do try to be very sensitive about it and bring a healthy and helpful perspective to those issues. You'll also notice that the discussion isn't quite over by the time the episode gets done. That's because we had such a great discussion that it lasted for about two hours. So we split this into two episodes. So episode two that you'll be listening to is the first part of our discussion on trauma. Episode three next week, will be continuing that discussion. You'll also notice that we're having a little bit of an issue with sound quality and some echoes in the first couple of minutes. We just got new recording software, so please bear with us. On the next episodes, it will be much, much better. And I'll have my air conditioning unit turned off. Thanks for listening to the show and have a safe walk, Podwalkers. Oh my gosh. That, that was terrifying. Whew. Yeah. Yeah, that was the worst count-in
1: I think I've ever heard.
0: <laughs> well, I try really hard, uh, so <laughs> that's the part of the show that we focus on the most, is the count-in.
1: I was gonna say, I thought you were gonna say we focus on trying really hard.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, that too. This doesn't come naturally. Think about how good we sound. That's a lot of work. Well, podwalkers uh, you're joining us on episode two and we are uh digging in further into our conversation about uh a little it's a little bit of a continuation of last episode where we talked about bolus but more so our our big theme of the week is trauma in magic and how that relates to us in the real world so uh we're gonna run down the show in just a minute, but first I want to introduce you to my lovely co-hosts. And uh, let's start with you first, Alex.
2: Uh, I'm Alex. Be uh, found on Twitter Alexander N E W M.
0: And what's your favorite color in magic?
2: <laughs> um, I really like playing green. Kind of resisted admitting that for a while because it's i play a lot of commander and it's pretty much the best color in commander but i love land shenanigans i love having three or four land drops a turn and running out of basics like i did yesterday at commander league two games in a row with two different decks so i'd have to say green
1: i didn't realize i was on a cast with this many green mages (laughs) well um i'm hobskew i can be found um on twitter at hobskew um I mean, if we're choosing just a single color, then it's most likely blue. I mean, I think that most people can that know me would say that I identify with the knowledge aspect, the knowledge gaining. I don't mind countering spells. I want card advantage. And I don't want you to be able to play Magic. <laughs>
0: Unless it's how
1: I want you to play Magic.
0: This is my shocked voice. Um... Well, I am uh, Joe Redman. You can find me on Twitter at Findhorn and that's F-Y-N-D, horn, like the elves or the brownie or the elder or the forest. Um, and I think it's pretty obvious by my handle that I'm a green mage, uh, but since we've already got somebody advocating for green, I actually, uh, in my personal life, I'm a lot more red. I'm really, uh, I am really... I just... I like going for things I get passionate about things. I'm I'm kind of a do first think after sort of person in in a lot of ways and uh, and really when it comes down to it it's a lot about what I care about and what I love And so that's a lot of how I play uh, decks too is go fast, go hard, do the things you want to do and hope that nobody you know stops you before you can get there so, uh, with our introductions there, uh, hopefully you, you've learned a little bit more about about us, listeners, and maybe we've learned a little bit more about ourselves. <sighs> yeah, we're starting we're startin good. We're starting good. It's going to be a long cast. Well, let's talk about exactly how long it's going to be. So we are going to be talking today about trauma in the real world, what it is, how it works, and what we need to know about it. Uh, we're going to talk about how that trauma is le- reflected in magic story. Um, we have a couple of articles that we're going to bring up, specifically a really great article by Michelle Rapp on Card Kingdom blog. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the trope of trauma in stories in general. Why is it that we see these so often? Why do they keep coming up? And how also the planeswalker spark is tied to trauma. Finally, we're gonna wrap it up with, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for us? You know, what should we be thinking about as it relates to these events and stories? And then a little bit of a mailbag for some of our listener questions that we've gotten. So, Hobbs, why don't you kick us off? You are our resident psychologist. Um, You are specifically experienced in this area. What is trauma? In the real world, as we know it, what is trauma?
1: Yeah, I'm, but I'm really glad that we're kind of doing this cast because uh, the, one of my goals here is to kind of... I, I'm always a big fan of kind of trying to clear up misconceptions, dealing with stigma, um, learning more about mental health and kind of how we talk, how language is important. And I think that the word trauma is, is something that kind of gets tossed around in a way in the English language and in the vernacular that is very different than kind of what it means to us as in psychology and in mental health. So I mean, I'll just ask both of you, what well, you know, what is your conception of trauma? What is a trauma?
2: Yeah, I mean, like, like, like the, the first impression of the word, word not sit to dig too much, much. but the, the first, first impression word, is, is something, large, something large, something big, something, something dramatic. dramatic. Um, be it uh, emotional thing or something physical, that happens.
0: Yeah, when, kind of. I, when I think of trauma, a lot of what I think about is... I, I mean, I'm a teacher in my day-to-day life, and so I think about... Um, some of my students who've come from situations of trauma, which is how they describe it in the field at least, but, you know, situations where there's not enough food to eat at home or you're not exactly sure how you're going to get to school the next day or even sometimes where you're going to be sleeping the next night.
1: Right. And, and there is kind of what we talk about with kind of this idea of
0: complex trauma, which we will get into a
1: little bit. It is probably a little bit too deep for kind of what we're going to be really discussing here. But... Very specifically, when we are talking about trauma, especially as it relates to what people would think of as PTSD, this post-traumatic stress disorder, basically the idea that you had a traumatic event and it really kind of impacted your functioning and kind of your ability to kind of from fun- you kind of work in the real world. Well. That type of trauma, it actually refers to something very specific. So I think last time we brought up the DSM and we talked about this diagnostic manual that psychologists use. And PTSD has criteria. You know, it's kind of like that similar idea behind depression. You know, you could be depressed without be having a major depressive episode. So when we're talking about it in kind of a clinical sense you don't just get to ptsd or depression or bipolar disorder by having one or two symptoms the systems symptoms kind of need to hold together as a cluster right There, there has to be more than just i have a
2: sad mood that's not really enough well the same is true when we're coming to talk about
1: ptsd so the first criteria for ptsd is trauma well in the dsm that trauma actually means that you need to have been exposed to an event or to some basically you are exposed to and i'm going to just pull up a definition right here that really is kind of looks at what like what the dsm says it's got to be a personal direct experience of an event that involves actual or threatened death or serious injury threats to one's physical integrity, witnessing an event that involves that, or learning about an unexpected or violent death, serious harm, or threat of death. So when we're talking PTSD, you have to have that definition of trauma first off. So if I was to ask you guys kind of like, oh, well, let's look at this. Having that type of trauma in your life, how common do you think that is?
0: I mean, it seems like it would be something super far outside the norm. You know, it it feels to me that that's more of a, um, you know, at least from my, and again, I mean, a lot of this is going to be based on personal experience, but from my experience personally, I would think of that as a a cataclysmic event that isn't common.
2: That would be my first impression too. Um, It seems like it would be something that that shouldn't happen a lot. Um, I suspect that may not be the case.
1: So, yeah, actually, it, it it turns out that it is not really the case. The, the, the fact is that, you know, looking at some of the research studies, uh, it, it, it it can be as high as basically 70 to 75 percent of people have experienced exposure to one of these traumas. Okay? Like, it's actually much more common to, to have kind of that happen in your life, whether it's finding out about something or we're finding out about uh, – a friend being killed or a suicide, or, you know, I mean, but even to the, and I'll give you guys kind of a personal example. Uh, when I went to Vegas when I was 21 and again when I was 22, and I bungee jumped. Uh, the second time that I went bungee jumping, as I was coming back up, the bungee actually started to wrap around my body and it hit me right across like my neck in a way that, you know, theoretically could have tightened around it. Okay, so th- that right there would be an experience to, for, that I had that would, could, that would qualify for like a criterion A event. Um, car accidents, I mean, it, the rates are really high. Now, what isn't high is actually developing PTSD. So basically, even though I experienced that, I would say I have not developed PTSD. And, and it actually is the case that most people who have experienced one of those traumas do not actually develop PTSD. The, the rate overall for adults around the country, kind of if you just did a random population that had been experienced one of those in a developed country, the rates are going to be maybe 1% to 3%.
2: Hmm.
1: Now, they are higher for very specific types of trauma. Um, so combat is a higher rate. Um, sexual violence, particularly rape, and those were actually the highest, right?
0: Well, that's there's a violent actually, thing done to your body and your person, yeah.
1: And and
0: with PTSD, when it comes to combat, it's also could be having done
1: those kind of traumatic things, or you know, not only that you were the one who were at the risk of death, but you also perpetrated. And there's a whole field that's emerging that's kind of talking about moral injury, and I do think that while that is separate from our Initial discussion, it does come into play potentially with some of what we may see with planeswalkers, yeah. where there is a
0: sense of moral injury. So, can I ask really quick, as a as an admittedly pretty ignorant uh, listener on this topic, not not ignorant uh, as in trying to be insensitive, but ignorant as in I'm learning a lot right now. Um, but so, what is it about the events of rape? or sexual violence or combat or um, survivor's guilt is something that's gonna come up later for us, Um, but what is it about those things that causes the long-lasting effects like PTSD versus something like a car crash? I mean, I do think it is kind of the
1: severity and kind of the very personal and intimate nature of those events. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of research into kind of what puts you more at risk, and it is tend to be, you know, physical interpersonal violence are where you're having the highest kind of rates. And I would say that there probably is something about the nature of that that is, is that it, to me, would make sense. And we do also know that even when those rates are higher, I mean, what's interesting is let's take rape, right? the rates are going to vary, it may be higher due to diagnostic problems, I mean there's a lot going on, but even if we're conservative at the 19 to 20 percent going a little bit higher, we're still not talking about the majority of people and that's kind of actually something that's because in some ways and this is where it's going to really come in and I think tie in nicely when we start talking about Michelle's article a little bit is on the flip side of trauma we actually have psychological resilience and there's a movement, I mean, a lot in psychology to talk more about positive psychology and to talk about, well, what makes people resilient, you know, because resiliency actually is the norm. Um, and, and I kind of brought a couple of examples that I thought that would highlight how this for people maybe to, to kind of wrap their head over um, and see in a different way. But um, have either of you guys played Darkest Dungeon? No. Or know what it is?
0: No, I've never no. heard of it.
1: Okay, so it's a turn-based RPG that um, it had been recommended me to me by a bunch of people, and I started playing it, where not only do you have hit points, but you also have um, basically like a stress meter, which is kind of like an anxiety. So if you're fighting in the dark um, and you take damage, you're more likely to experience higher levels of stress. And when that stress meter hits a certain level, you actually your character basically has this situation where they either respond in kind of a very negative way or they respond in a resilient way and they're actually buffed by reaching that high level of stress. Now, this game is interesting because in between kind of your battles, you actually need to return to your village that you live in, this like very eldritch horror village and like rest people. And you have to know because if they remain stressed for too long, they develop quirks or they develop personality characteristics that are unhealthy. Hmm. Um and the game's actually interesting in this sense too. That if your character dies in the game, you can build up this entire character. You they're dead. It's not like they're dead for a battle. You go back to a save point. That you actually just they are no longer available in the game. So you're constantly kind of having to. Balance that, and I kind of think of that being the real world kind of resiliency versus trauma, and that you do have, and we we don't always predict well about who's going to develop which. We do know there's different risk factors. You know, childhood trauma puts you at a higher risk factor for developing it later on. in like, there may be if you're more likely to have familial stressors. I mean, it's it's like most things. Things that happen in childhood are going to put you at a higher risk later on. But the norm actually is resiliency. And I just, before we kind of start the rest of it, I want to kind of highlight that and really play up this idea that most people are resilient. Now, when people do develop PTSD, it is because there is a whole host of symptoms that kind of come along with it. There's different categories, you know, there's things like flashbacks, um, uh, re-experiencing symptoms, avoidance of certain places or situations. So, you know, um, if you, you know, you can think of this in a certain way of like, if you were sexually assaulted at a certain place, you now, or let, we'll even just start with a car accident, you start driving a different route. So you won't drive near where you had gotten into that car accident,
0: for instance. Right. You start um, associating that with the fear that the event, the, the somewhat irrational fear, right? That that event yeah, would re- you, replay.
2: Right.
1: And, or that you're going. I mean, and this is where okay. So another thing that this comes about is you know the, what you're trying to avoid at that point is literally what is considered in the field a trigger. And this is where mm-hmm. we get the idea of trigger warnings, or the idea of triggers that people will sometimes I think uh, you know make fun of, but that that it, it always really does frustrate people in the mental health field because triggers are actually a real thing, and unfortunately. The, the reason that trigger warnings are actually have been controversial at times within the mental health field is the actual way to be able to overcome the effects of a traumatic event are to engage with basically feeling uncomfortable or being back in situations that make you feel like that you're going to re-experience the trauma. You have to kind of deal with those triggers. You have to deal with the situations that are reminders because avoidance of them just teaches you that they are bad and you need to avoid them, which reinforces the negative effects of the trauma.
2: That sounds similar to, um, I don't know, I'm not sure if I've ever actually talked to you about this, but I have social anxiety. And. That's a thing that I found after getting some therapy that I needed to go out of my comfort zone because having it for years without it being diagnosed, I was avoiding things and then avoiding things that were like those things and avoiding things that were like those things. And it was this narrowing of my life. And by going out, I was able to kind of start to stretch that back
1: out again. And I mean, in kind of how the DSM was organized, you know, the trauma disorders kind of fell very similarly under anxiety disorders. And it's a generalization of kind of that idea that things need to be feared. And like Alex kind of talked about with like it generalizes. So avoidance works incredibly well at keeping you from, you know, being afraid. So if you have panic attacks, for instance, and you know that you have panic attacks when you go to certain like the Mall of America, so you never go to the Mall of America. Well, the great thing is you don't feel that panic, right? Hmm. But then now it's not just the Mall of America. It's you associate it with something else that's kind of similar and pretty soon you can see that this is kind of narrowing down your world.
0: And really, like, when if we're thinking about this um, in its sort of evolutionary function, and listeners, stick with me. We're bringing this right back to right back to what is important in this story. But it's important to know what all this is. But if we're talking about its evolu- evolutionary function, that's designed to keep you safe, though, right? Those fears are... Even though they're irrational, it's just that the misassociation, almost, right?
1: So that's actually, Joe. So I mean, this, this is why I'm so glad to do a cast with such, like, I mean, seriously, like, such thoughtful co-hosts. Because that's exactly kind of what we teach people. We teach this idea of like fight or flight. It it, it is still very much in us. And the idea is that when you have some of this trauma, and especially if you start developing PTSD you start responding to more and more things as if they are something that needs to be feared. And even if they're not, your body is treating them that way. And so you react in kind of that you you react in a way that then treats that thing as a feared thing so you don't engage with it, you don't deal with it, and it continues to be that for you because you don't have a corrective experience where you experience something and what you fear, that irrational fear doesn't happen.
0: So can you, uh, you just said a, a term that I really like, and we, we talked a little bit about resilience and we're gonna get into that in, in regards to Gideon, especially in the stories. Um, but I like the term corrective experience. Can you just give us like a, a quick definition of what that is or an example of what it might be?
1: Yeah, so a corrective experience would be, let's say that um, I have, you know, I I go to the, I I always use the Mall of America because it is a place that is just, it has tons of people there. And it is a place that I can easily become, you you can easily become overwhelmed, even if you're like the most psychologically well-minded person in the world. it, It still is an overwhelming place, right? So I go to the Mall of America and let's say I'm somebody that has I've had a history of panic attacks or I've had them in the past and I have one when I'm at the Mall of America, right? So now I never go back there. A corrective experience would be me going back and it may be that I go and I stay for five minutes and then the key thing is if I start to feel anxious or kind of uh, a panic attack, I don't necessarily leave. I learn to use coping strategies. I learn to use deep breathing and I try to basically what we call waited out. I try to let myself have that heightened anxiety return to kind of a normal level and it kind of eventually over time it's kind of that it's exposure you're exposing yourself and i mean you you may have heard this with phobia work you know theoretically if you have a phobia then you would do gradual kind of exposure to something so let's say you had a phobia uh, spiders are not actually a phobia because it's supposed to be an irrational fear (laughs) and it's rational to be afraid of spiders um no but i mean your height example or even spiders honestly like for me if i was to do it i should look at a spider in a magazine and then sit there and look at it until I'm able to bring my anxiety back down and then I would be able to be in the same room with the dead spider I mean then I move to a live spider I mean you would kind of just move along and the idea is that each of those stages I'm correcting what was an unpleasant experience
0: that's awesome that's a really cool thing to think about
1: just one last point. Um, the, the main thing that I think is important to realize when it comes to, if people are talking about diagnosing and stuff like that is that there actually is kind of the, the, the hallmark point, point whenever it comes to any mental health disorder, all of them have this thing that they have to impact your life in some way. They have to impact your real world functioning. Theoretically, if You have symptoms, but they don't impact your ability to kind of live your life the way you want to. It is never considered a disorder, and I just think that's something that people, I really want to put out there.
0: With all of that, there's a lot of great information to ground our stories in in life, because this is stuff that we see in magic that I think often is kind of considered just... Traditional superhero fair, and we're you're gonna dig into that in a little bit, Alex. But, um, this is this is sort of the stuff that seems like oh, it always happens, it's you know, it's just there, it's throwaway backstory for our characters before they get to punching the bad guy in the face. But there is some really real, uh, raw and personal stuff that especially has been going into the magic story of late, and so I want to. Uh, where i started thinking about this for this week is i reread um the episode the issue uh, of the chronicles of bolus the twins the first one that we got last week i reread it and i noticed a really actually heart-wrenching moment in that story gut-wrenching moment in that story um and so I want to I want to read just a little bit of this here. So this is this is just after Marevia Sal uh, is being attacked by the hunters, and Nickel and Ugin have hatched, and Nickel is trapped under a, a tree or a, a log and can't free himself. Um, and this this paragraph right here. Nickel can't look away, gripped by a confusion, a frenzy churning in his gut. The blood and anticipation swell like hunger. How dare these small, weak bipeds assault one of his own. And then it carries on with, hurry up, we have to help her. Nickel hisses, it's true, they can do nothing as long as he's trapped. It's maddening and it's wrong. And so I wanted to bring that up because we talked a little bit last week about whether or not we would get any sort of sympathetic or empathetic moments for Nicol Bolas in this Core 19 story arc. And I think right here we already get sort of a, a tragic moment for him in that his first memory of life is he is trapped under a log under a tree and needing to be freed unable to do it himself you know there's blood uh, after he hit his head on the ground Um, his wings are trapped by branches and fallen like a net over him and what he hears and sees is literally his sister with a net over her being killed and you know that is a horrible way to come into the world if you think about it that way. You know, we we know that Nicol Bolas is the big bad, is cruel, is awful, but really his first memory, his first real-world experience is this. And that's, that's horrifying. It seems yeah, to me I mean, that that's... there's a pretty clear comparison there between Moravia Sal and Bolus's situation. She has literally a net over her. It says, trapped by branches, fallen like a net over him. You know?
1: And, and like in you, you said, you know, like, so we're getting this story and this the way that it's being presented to us is interesting because it would be, I would love to see if we were seeing this kind of, You know, is this something that Nicol Bolas re-experiences? Is this something that, like, he gets transported back to this time? You know, like, I think it would tell us a lot more about him if we knew that.
0: Yeah, how often, yeah, how often is it that he thinks about these things? Or particularly, you know, um, has, and I, I was wondering this too, is how often has he been on Dominaria since this moment? you know i think his appearance at the end of the dominaria story arc might be one of the first times we've actually seen him on the plane and and part of that is i'm sure you know the the issue of like we just haven't been on dominaria for 10 years but i wonder if that's part of it too does he need 500 to a millennium 500 years to a millennium in between visits like you know does he avoid Wherever this is, the Palladia, the Moors Ridge in in Dominaria. Yeah, I mean and that could even be an interesting thing to talk about. Is you know, is you're
1: returning to Dominaria but avoiding specific areas of the plane?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's a fascinating thing, and it's one that I don't know if it makes it empathetic, but it's it's a little bit. Um, it's, it's a compelling part of the story to me and it really lines up for me, his perspective on, you know, immediately he experiences that the world is cruel, the world is vicious and the world and everything in it is trying to kill you. And that, that to me, you know, that seems like it would shape a lot of worldview. We talked, you talked a bit Hobbs about how, um, you know, trauma and, and PTSD have to have an impact on your life in order to be categorized as, you know, a, a, an actual disorder. So if that was the case, I mean, that affects your worldview right from the get-go, and that's certainly, you know, what I don't think any of us would consider a healthy way of perceiving the world.
1: And, and like I said, so this comes back to them, us needing to know a lot more about you know wh- how he is acting now at this point and w- what the impact has been. So I- I'll give another quick example, kind of bringing this just real quick back to the real world. I gave my example of kind of my bungee jumping, right? So w- what's interesting is I did experience some of the symptoms of PTSD because most of us will in response to a trauma. It- it's a matter of they didn't my normal kind of healing process or what would the resiliency piece, you know, it, it helped, but I did have that, the day that it happened, every time I closed my eyes, I could, I felt like I was back there. I could picture it, you know? So I had that. I know what that feels like. I know what that, that was. Now it went away. You know, it, it, it kind of naturally did what it, what, what most of us do. And I don't know, we don't know what bolus's experiences
0: are this is where i think it's going to be interesting to see what the story comes out with this week and you know we're recording this before wednesday so the new story hasn't dropped um but i think this art could really line up a lot of that backstory where we do start to know what the um motivations are and what his mental processes are because he's you know He's a mystery to us still. We, we've talked about that a bit already. Um, oh, go My ahead.
1: hope is that we're totally calling the story like the day before it, and we're going to get accused of having insider information.
0: With that, I want to pivot to Michelle Rapp's article because this is a really great way of talking about a, a really great personal encapsulation of this idea of, of trauma and magic. And Gideon is the center piece of this story um michelle talks in this article on card kingdom again a a lot about her own personal experiences with trauma um you know issues that she had with um you know not being respected and not being um valued as much as she should by her parents um you know, trying, but while still having that urge, that desire to try to do what was morally right, you know, but instead seeing that shift as she was trying to do what was right to please her parents, and so those are two very different things. The the do what is right, uh, you know, I I don't I don't know where you guys fall on the idea of sort of universal goodness and rightness, but I think we all have, most of us have that innate sense of goodness in us, and we know when we're doing things that don't follow that, even if they placate a situation, and Michelle talks a lot about that um, in the first chapter of her story, Um, and this is where we get into the story of Gideon, who. Really is a street rat in Theros. Um, he's, you know, he lives in Akros, and he and the Irregulars, his band of of kids, you know, the, this gang of kids, stole from the rich, you know, fed on what they needed, took the gold that they needed, and then gave the rest to the poor. So really, we have this classic Robin Hood type of story, but the means are not necessarily. Right, you know, he is a thief at that point in time, morally not doing what's right, even though it is trying to solve the situation not only of his own hunger, but also helping the poor out in the city and and sort of spreading wealth. You know, he eventually starts learning his magic after he goes to prison and is taught by the by the warden Hixis. That's hieromancy. That's where Gideon starts picking up that, um, and then. You know, he, he gathers up the irregulars again and they start to become a little more of like a, a super friends type of thing. They're defending Akros from Cyclopses and Harpies and even the death god Erebos' is Titan. Um, but this is where everything goes completely upside down for Gideon because uh, a spear that the sun god Helios loaned to him, he hurls that at Erebos. Only to have Erebos turn that same, you know, turn the spear, reverse it on him. And Gideon uses some of his Hieromancy magic to try to shield his friends, but it fails. And so this is this is the this is that traumatic event for Gideon here. Um, this is the story. No damage, but he noticed flecks of red. He moved a hand to wipe them and saw that the back of it was splattered red too. Both hands were. But if it wasn't his blood. His eyes passed over four lifeless bodies. And so that's where we get the flavor text too on the card from Magic Origins, Tragic Arrogance. The spear thrown by Kithian's own hand was the weapon that failed fell, that felled his friends. And so you have in that that traumatic event, that you know, experience, that survivor guilt comes right here and his whole world collapses.
1: Well, so and remember you know, so the survivor Guild is a huge part, and that is the part that tends to come up uh, in. I mean, that is a big part of PTSD. It also is he did not get hurt physically; he did not die like his friends did, but he had the chance to. He, it was an experience where he could have had, you know, a real threat of death.
0: Well, and and even more traumatically, Kithian was one of the most faithful. Um, believers in the gods and in this moment not only did his patron the sun god Heliod the weapon that he was given to him not only was that the weapon that killed his friends you know Erebos the death god was the god that contributed to their deaths and his own trauma and so for him not only is it the realization that he was the one that got his friends into this gang that he brought them to this battle, that he threw the spear that killed them, but the gods that he believed in were also partly responsible. And so not only does his whole sort of world around him in the immediate physical world collapse, that belief system collapses. And and that's that's doubly harmful, you know, that that's that's a whole existential crisis all in one. Gideon, as a result of this, sparks, and we're gonna get into a bit more about the Planeswalker spark in a bit. The way that Gideon does it, up until the Dominaria story block, is really literally running himself as ragged as possible. It's almost like he could you know, die. I, I think the the fight against Bolas on Amaket is probably the the best example of this moment. Gideon keeps battering himself against Bolas, keeps you know, essentially using himself as a human battering ram with his shield magic up, but he keeps getting knocked back like a like a bouncy ball, uh, you know, time and time again, almost like you know he's just going to get crushed. And this is that moment where Gideon does. We see that reliving that replaying it. Um, Only once before in his life had Gideon felt so helpless. He had resolved never again to watch his friends die as he had when Erebos had killed all he held dear. This entire battle had been a nightmare from the beginning as Bolas had kept him out of the fight. So, again, Gideon is helpless to stop what's happening. Again, his friends are involved in a battle. This time it's the Gatewatch. You know, again, he's being kept out of it and protected at the same time. And so not only can he not be touched while he's got his shield magic up his friends are getting beat down and so then this is what nicol Bolas says to him i could kill you gideon anytime i want but i suspect you would not mind dying the way you play so carelessly with your life and the lives of others no far better for you to live today to know how pathetic you were how useless you were even better how little i care I give you the choice, stay and die or leave and live. And for a moment, Gideon actually considers staying on Amaket and letting Bullis kill him. It's it's that moment of of he could let it all go. He could be free of the guilt, he could be free of the burdens of his conscience, you know. It's that moment, too, where, where Bolas becomes that voice in his head that, you know, he gives, gives words to the voice that had been in his head and, you know, says exactly what, been do, what he's been doing because Gideon literally was bouncing between, you know, trying to maintain order on, on Ravnica in, like, 8 to 12-hour chunks to planes walking back to Zendikar and fighting Yeldrazi, and he literally was not sleeping. Yeah. So I uh, you know it's that th- that moment where all of that is built up and we see Gideon truly consider you know letting it go, letting you know it, it's not exactly suicide, but it, it, it's self-destructive tendencies you know to the point where he's willing to let somebody else end him. Um, but after that moment, he does leave he does walk away and he does regroup and over the course of the dominaria arc we do see him realize that he can process those events he can come to grips with those emotions um you know he doesn't surrender to his pain to his feelings of inadequacy instead he finds a way to try to help his friend in this case liliana break her pact and, you know, become free and and let her life become something bigger and greater. He truly takes on that ability uh, to, you know, and, and this comes from the conversation with Teferi, too, I might add, who, you know, saw his whole homeland disappear he was the cause of his homeland disappearing and but he sees that Teferi has kept his life going and has found a purpose for himself and so Gideon in that way does the same thing and sets his mind to you know what maybe this can be something you know I can find a way to persevere through this and there's that resilience piece that comes in and I would say even that, that t- conversation with Teferi might be the corrective experience.
1: Right. I mean, in, in, it is. It could be that, you know, he ex- he saw somebody else that had experienced a horrific, traumatic event and had found a way to cope with it. And, you know, whether it's just that Teferi found a way to live kind of a value-driven life that he at least was like, well, yes, that happened. And I can also
0: try to make things better. I can keep working. Absolutely. And I And that's to me, that's the lesson of Gideon. And, and I'm not doing Michelle's article nearly enough justice. We, we don't have enough time to do the article justice. It is beautifully written. It is very personal. It is very, um, you know, thoughtful and she truly, you know, helps under, helps us understand those moments of, you know, of trauma in Gideon's life and how they how they can sometimes be mirrors to our own life, but also that those moments of resilience, those times where he does say, no, I won't give in to the easy thing. Because it is easy to surrender. It is easy to sacrifice yourself. And we know that from the color pie, white is so often the color of self-sacrifice. You know, for the greater good. and That's what it tells itself all the time, for the greater good. But
1: I think, you know, so I just want to chime in a little bit that she says right at the end of that article, though trauma is a common occurrence for many people, and she cites some of the stats that are, you know, similar to kind of what I was talking about earlier, that it's a a minimum 50%, let's say, that's had one of these traumatic events, that many people, the grace and will to move forward is incredible and precious, and I will say that, you know, like, um, so Michelle actually consulted with me on this article before writing it, kind of wanting to get to know a little bit more about, you know, trauma and what that means and what what is the likely course, and, and, and the way she incorporated it here is just absolutely beautiful.
0: The grace and will, and those are two qualities of white also on the color pie that I think we do need to think about and carry forward in our own lives. That's our show. Thanks for listening, Podwalkers. I know it was serious, but we do get to some fun stuff, including some mailbag questions, at the end of episode three. Remember, as always, you can find HobbsQ at HobbsQ on Twitter, you can find Alex Newman at Alexander New M, and you can find Joe Redman at Findhorn. You can find this podcast at Goblin Lore Pod on Twitter, or you can email us at goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. Links to both Michelle Rapp's article on Card Kingdom and the magic story, Chronicles of Bolas, the Twins, are linked in the show notes. Thank you all for listening, and remember the trick is once you get moving, don't stop.